Have you ever wanted to watch a game, but you were unable to make it in time, and you only got to see the last few minutes of it? You only get to see the ending. I uh, remember the first time I saw the ending of my first American football game. It was a pretty powerful and memorable experience, and from that day, my interest into football was pricked. Uh, for some of you, may feel like mildly. That's okay. It was pricked, nevertheless. Sometimes when you just get to the end of, of a game, you, you get to see at least how it, how it ends. You miss the whole thing, but, but the ending is hopefully good, and it's worth getting into. Well, some of you this morning may feel this way about what we're about to experience uh, for the rest of our service. If you are especially visiting us for the first time, you are sitting in on the very last part of the book of Isaiah. We have already covered 64 chapters of this book. And all we have left is chapter 65, and Lord willing, next week, chapter 66. It has taken us 50 sermons to get to this point. And if you are interested to review um, uh, the rest of the series, you are welcome to listen online. But in order to appreciate what we're about to get into in this chapter, it's helpful to remind ourselves what has taken place so far in the book. So let me do a quick review through the book. God has confronted his people, Israel, because they have not followed the Lord. Instead, they chose to rely on themselves, on their own strategies for political safety. They chose to incorporate pagan elements into their worship of God. And after many, many, and many attempts to persuade his people to return back to the Lord, God decreed that he will send them into exile. God would take them out of the very land that he had promised them to have. The prophet Isaiah was sent by God to warn them, to give them the final warning, to call them back, and to tell them that the exile is coming. But halfway through the book, starting with chapter 40, God began revealing to his people the news that after the exile, God would restore his people, that God would provide comfort for his people, for the remnant of his people. But in order to restore them, in order to comfort them, the obstacle was not merely the exile. The problem was not simply the exile, but their sin, their rebellion, their inclination to ignore God and to forsake him. The exile alone was not going to take care of their sin problem. And the return from the exile, which God promised that would happen, would not guarantee that the sin problem will actually be resolved. So in Isaiah 52 and 53, God revealed to his people that he was going to send a servant, a servant of the Lord who will come and take upon himself the punishment that his people deserved, will take upon himself the the wounds that he, this people deserve to experience. And through the wounds of this servant of the Lord, and through his death, and through his resurrection, God would bring healing to his people and cleanse them of their sin. As the news of, of God's promised restoration was going to 
unfold in the rest of the book of Isaiah, especially in chapters 55 to the end of the book. We arrived last uh, few weeks ago, uh, particularly in chapters 63 and 64, finally to a place that God has, has wanted his people to get to, namely to own their sin, to recognize it, to acknowledge it, confess it, and desire to turn away from it. So chapter 63 and 64 include one of the most amazing prayers of confession that we see in the, in the entire Bible. It begins in chapter 64 with, with these words. Isaiah says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. This prayer of confession and request that God would come down ends with the following request at the end of chapter 64. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? This is how the prayer of confession of sin ended. And the question is, what will God do? How will God answer to the prayer of, of confession, of this particular confession that Isaiah and the remnant community with Isaiah have prayed to the Lord? How will God answer? The answer is chapter 50, 65. In 66. And this morning we will look at just the first half of this prayer that God, uh, that, that this answer that God gives to the prayer of, of uh, his people. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 65. We will read this word. If you did not bring a Bible with you, we encourage you to grab the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you. You may find this passage in the Pew Bibles on page number 623. As you're opening God's word, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we would love for you to grab the Bibles that, that are in front of you and take them home, read them. If you have any questions about anything from the Bible, we would love to talk to you. This morning, let's hear God's word for our hearts. Isaiah 65. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here am I. To a nation that, I was not call, that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their bosom, both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their bosom payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it, so I will do for my servant's sake, and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Accor a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me, 
But you, who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fills cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword. And all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death, but his servants he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall the herd, no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. And the sinner, a hundred years old, shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain. Or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord, and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall grace together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking God to bless our hearts in the preaching of his word? Father, it's a privilege to hear from you. Would you speak to our hearts in ways that would draw us to yourself, in ways that would help us see the beauty of your great name, the beauty of your great grace. Father, we pray that you would be exalted even through our hearing. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Chapter 65 is the first part of God's answer to the prayer that was uttered in chapter 63 and 64. But as we look at the answer that God gives, it catches us by surprise. We want God to answer prayer. We expect God to answer prayer the prayer that we bring to him. 
But the prayer that he answers this time and the answer he gives to this prayer has a few elements that catches us by surprise. We might expect that God would come down and just fix what is broken. But that is not exactly what we see here. He is not coming merely to fix what is broken. He's not coming merely to help us have a better version of this life, a better version of the dreams we hope for ourselves, a better version of the expectations we have. We see this morning that God's answer is unexpected in a few ways. Three ways we will see God's answer be unexpected. First one, God's grace is unintuitive. God's grace is unintuitive. In what way is God's grace unintuitive? Two ways we see this in this passage. First, God reveals himself, he says, to those who don't seek him. This chapter begins by describing the readiness of God to be found even by people who don't search for him. In verse 1, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. In other words, God is not playing hide and seek with us. God is lavishly reaching out to reveal himself to people who formerly had no connection with him. Actually, God is not only open to be found, He's actually taking initiative to reveal himself. He's not even just sort of like sitting there somewhat in a, in, a, in a place hiding himself. And hopefully you stumble over him. Hopefully by accident you, you find him. No, he is taking initiative in revealing himself to those who, who don't search for God. Verse 1, I said, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. God is interested to pursue those who don't pursue him and have no interest in him. That's why if you're here this morning, perhaps someone invited you, perhaps you're just tumbling into a, a church on a sunny morning and you say, I, I just, I've not looked for God. I, I don't think I'm interested in religious things. Friends, if, if that's you this morning, you are exactly in the category of people that God wants to reveal himself to. Just realize that God revealing himself to you is not based on on the fervor of of how much you have had experience with God in the past. God wants to make himself known to those who actually don't seek him. God loves to reveal himself to those who don't seek him. Friend, I wonder if you think that before God finds you, somehow you must clean up your life, or somehow you must meet certain conditions before getting to know God. Friends, God is interested to reveal himself to those who have no prior knowledge or experience of God. But this also gives a confidence for us as Christians who might be timid in sharing the gospel in, in, in our evangelistic efforts. Sometimes we might feel that we, someone may not know or be interested in, in coming to God because they have no prior experience with God. Dear Christians, let this, let this verse encourage us that God is interested to, to reveal himself to those who have had no exposure to God before. A second reason why God's grace is is unintuitive here is because God will not let rebellion go on forever. We see this in verses 2 to 7. Some people may think that God's grace is only about acceptance and no judgment. Like grace somehow means no judgment zone. 
Now, it's true that God in His grace chooses to bring sinners who deserve God's judgment. God chooses to bring sinners like that and brings them to Himself and makes them His own people, even though none of, none of us deserve that. That's true. What is not true is that God's salvation is without judgment. God's grace does not rule out judgment. If you're new to church, this is one of the greatest news you can hear. This is one of the greatest news we can proclaim every Sunday when we're gathered. God's grace is the news that God placed His judgment on someone else other than us sinners. Actually, God placed His judgment on a sinless person on the one who had no sin of his own. And God placed his wrath on him by crucifying him on a cross. He died on a third day. God raised him from the dead. That is Jesus. He died the death of a criminal, of one who had been cursed by God. He died the death as a substitute in the place of all those who would turn away from their sin and call on Christ to save them. So that anyone who would turn to Christ, anyone who would rely on Jesus for for being made right with God, would indeed experience God's salvation. If you'd like to know more about this salvation, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. Just find me or find another Christian and talk to them about what is this grace that you guys are talking about. I need to know more about it. I want to respond to it. Friends, those who continue to forsake God, even though hearing this news of God's amazing grace, those who continue to ignore His salvation, those who continue to live life living their own ways, or even pursue religion in their own way, for them, God's grace will manifest in judgment upon themselves because they have not entrusted in the judgment God poured on Christ. The surprising thing about God in this chapter The surprising thing about His grace in this chapter is that while God reveals Himself to those who did not seek Him, He actually turns in judgment to those who feel entitled to God's grace and continue to live in rebellion against Him. Notice how God describes the rebellion of His people in this chapter. In verse 2, He says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people. As As we listen to the description of this rebellion, Let's listen for some patterns that even though we not, may not be the people of Israel in the Old Testament, we are so many centuries away from them. The patterns of rebellion, dear friends, stay with us. And these patterns of rebellion most likely are going to continue to lure you moving forward in your life. Listen to the patterns of rebellion. In verse 2, the first pattern of rebellion, those who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. Did you hear that? This is how God describes the rebellion of his people, following their own devices. At the heart of our rebellion against God is that we guide our lives wanting to be the final authority over ourselves. We want to guide our life ultimately based on our plans, our thoughts, and our desires. Rather than living lives 
that are guided by our Creator. I look around this morning, knowing that we have an influx of, of students who are visiting for the first time, and most of you are first-time freshmen, students. You will have a new challenge as you begin as a student on a UT campus. For any of you who are starting in this season of life, you're going to live on your own, away from your family. For most of you, away even from the churches that you grew up in, you will experience a degree of freedom that has been unprecedented in your life. Moving forward. And it will be very tempting for you to do things you've always wanted to do without mom and dad being very close, watching what you do, asking when did you come home, where did you go, and so forth. It'll be very tempting for you to, to, to finally look forward to that freedom and you, to think that you can live your life now knowing that mom and dad are not close to watch over you. And your church back home is not close to watch over you. But friends, God is watching over you. You will never be able to escape His view, His sight of you. He, see, he sees everything that you do, everything that you plan, everything that you think, everything that you desire. And realize this, that the path that is not good in God's sight is the path in which you choose your own devices, your own thoughts, your own desires apart from Him. You may wonder, why is that wrong? Why is choosing my own devices, my own ways wrong in God's sight? Because the Bible tells us that each and every one of us have been born with a nature that has been corrupted by sin and rebellion. Inside of us, each of us carry a nature that is inclined towards seeking our own selves and replacing God from the throne of, of our lives. Naturally, we are bent toward acting against God, putting Him on the sidelines of our lives. Our nature has become so corrupt that we desire rather to pursue our desires and our thoughts rather than God's desires and God's thoughts. So with a heart that is bent towards displacing God from our lives, all it takes is for you and I to give free reign to our desires and our thoughts, and our devices. That's why, dear friends, we, when we ask God to save us, His salvation is not merely a ticket to heaven when we're done with this life on earth. No, His salvation is rather a change of heart. When God saves us, He creates a new nature inside of us. He fuses a new nature that prior to this experience was alien to us. And all of a sudden, when we become Christians, we now have two natures inside of us. The old doesn't go away. If anything, now a new war begins inside of us. And as a Christian, the life of a Christian is always the life of, of one who chooses to, to mortify, to put to death the desires of the flesh, of the sinful nature, and follow the desires of the, of the new nature that God has given us. Oh, dear friends, rebellion, all it takes for rebellion to play out is for us to just let our lives be guided by our own thoughts and desires and devices. If we keep reading, we find out that the Israelites were rebellious, not only in choosing their own desires and thoughts and devices, 
they were rebellious in choosing religion. You might be surprised. You might think that rebellion against God is choosing to be irreligious. Just ignore religion. Ignore religion. Ignore organized religion. In the Old Testament, when, when the people of God are confronted with their rebellion, their issue was not that they chose to be irreligious. Their issue was that they chose to follow God by integrating pagan practices into the worship of God. Their rebellion is that they made up their own re- creative religious practices by following what the other tribes and nations around them were doing. Look at verses 3 and 4. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offering on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat in, the, is in their vessels. These were religious practices that the Canaanites uh, were practicing. And Israel had no problem, apparently, picking up some of these religious practices. Why? We may wonder, choose. Don't you know what God said? Why were they practicing these these new creative things? Because they were accepted. Because there was a norm. And they thought they were continuing to worship God while integrating these new practices. Friends, here's here's a challenge for us. While the Israelites thought they were religious... They became a man, or they developed a man-pleasing religion, not a faithful worship based on what God asked them to do. Friends, our worship should not be based on what makes us feel good, on what we like to see in other people experience. Our worship should be based entirely and exclusively based on what God reveals about himself in his word. Friends, we can be religious even by, I'm sorry, we can be rebellious even by being religious if we are pursuing a man-made or a man-centered religion. Third, they thought they were holy and they were practicing social holiness. In verse 5, they say, keep to yourself, don't come near me, for I'm too holy for you. Friends, even in their social holiness, they were practicing rebellion against God because... While they thought they were holy, they were so far from the holiness that God actually desired from them. So what was God's reaction to all this? In verse 7, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offering on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Friends, I wonder if you recognize that our rebellion against God, regardless of what form it takes, our rebellion against God is an insult to God. Sin is a big deal, not because of the specific thing that we do, but because of the insult we bring to the one who created all things. That is why sin is such a big deal, because it's an insult against God himself. God says that he will punish not because they have, done big, they have done big crimes. And this is the unexpected part of this chapter. When we look at the things that God lists for which God will punish his people, it's none of the big crimes that we might think would deserve God's punishment. Living a life that's based on their self-autonomy being religious in their own man-pleasing ways, and seeking social holiness. 
at the expense of real holiness. And God says, I'm going to punish you because this is like like smoke in my nostrils. I'm going to bring it all on you. God will not tolerate forever our choices of following our own devices. God will not tolerate man-made, man-centered religion. God does not care how religious we feel or how holy we feel. That's why part of our emphasis as a church is to desire to go back to the Bible and worship God according to how He calls and reveals Himself to us. College students, I'm going to speak to you again this morning because you are in a position where I realize and recognize you may not come back to this church to worship the Lord. You may be visiting other churches. We encourage you to check out other churches. By God's grace, there's a number of good gospel churches in this city. May I say there's also a bunch of others who are not good. One of the things we encourage you as you check out other churches as well is don't pay attention so much on how good the music might feel. Look and see how much time they spend on opening the Bible and actually reading the Bible. And when they start reading the Bible and the sermon starts, ask yourself if they actually explain the Bible or the Bible is more like a, like a jumping pad. And they may never get back to it. Just ask yourself, is, is this a church that actually teaches you how to think carefully and understand God's Word? Look for churches who will teach you well God's Word. Because if, if you're in a place that will not point you back to God's Word, you will not have a good standard by which to see whether or not even your religion, as good as you might feel about it, might actually be right in God's sight on the final day. So I encourage you to find a church that is serious about teaching God's Word and not only teaching it on Sundays, but seeking to live it out during the week, not just on their public gatherings, but also in small groups or one-on-one discipling. Commit to find a congregation that is committed to teach you God's word and help you understand it and live it out. The surprising truth in these verses is that rebellion rebellion can take the form of independence and of religion and even of, of holiness when we just make it an outward social holiness. If you find yourself in any of these categories, God is patient in extending his arms towards you. And he says, I'm, I have my arms open towards you. Come back to me. Don't take his grace for granted. God's grace is unintuitive because God's grace makes God ready to be found. He even, God even takes initiative to reveal himself to those who do not know him. But God's grace will not ignore rebellion forever. And God will not allow rebellion to go unpunished. The second truth we see about God's unexpected answer um, is the following, that God will create a new people from a remnant that he has held by grace. God will create a new people from the remnant. In God's grace, God will not destroy everyone. That's what he says in, these chap- in this chapter, that he will leave a remnant. For, and from that remnant, God will rebuild the people for himself. It was about 50 sermons ago when we looked at chapter 1. The notion of the remnant appeared as early as verse 9 of chapter 1 of Isaiah. There, the prophet said, 
If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And now we get to the end of the book, and we see the same idea of a remnant that God chose not to destroy. Look at verse 8. Thus says the Lord, as a new wine is found in the cluster, and, and they say, do not destroy it, for there's a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. God chose not to destroy the people in entirety, but instead God chose to preserve some. But it didn't stop there. He didn't just preserve some. God promised to create new offspring from his people. Look at verse 9, and this is amazing. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. Now, friends, biologically speaking, we know what needs to happen for offspring to come about. Here God says, I will bring it about. God is taking responsibility to take, to build up, to rebuild his people, and to make his people a new people again. Friends, if God has committed himself to rebuild the people for himself from the remnant of Israel, then our desire, as we look around the congregation, for seeing the church grow, both qualitatively and numerically, our desire for that growth should be entirely confident in the fact that God and God alone is able to bring up a people for himself. But as God desires and describes the restoration of his people, God contrasts the future of his servants with the future of those who continue to rebel. And here is where we get to a a fork in the way. Here's where we get to a place where God says, okay, I am committed to rebuild my people. But listen, there's, there's two categories that are going to emerge. There's those who are going to be my servants. And there's going to be those who might keep have my name on them, but who continue to forsake me, who continue to rebel against me, who continue to sideline me, who continue to, to worship God on their own terms. There's going to be a fork in the way. And for the rest of this uh, chapter, we see the, the clear contrast that God makes between his servants, whom God is building up and what he prepares for them, and those who actually are going to continue the path of rebellion. God is addressing again. He says in verse 11, But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, God is addressing again those who are tempted to forsake the Lord and describes it in various ways. Again, rebellion is described here. In verse 11 and verse 12, by forgetting the mountain of the Lord, choosing instead to pursue the pagan gods of fortune and destiny. Notice what is perhaps a climax of forsaking the Lord. In verse 12, and it's as if this captures all the previous descriptions of rebellion. Here it is. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. I wonder if you recognize and see here that forsaking the Lord is manifested ultimately when we stop listening to Him and responding to Him. That's why one of the main aims that we have as a church is to encourage one another 
to increase the quality of our listening to the Lord. We begin rebelling because our hearts turn away from the Lord. But that first manifestation, visible manifestation of that rebellion is manifested when we stop paying attention. That's why, dear friends, one of the things we encourage you, encourage one another is not only to come regularly to hear God's word proclaimed publicly, but as soon as the service is dismissed, talk to someone about what the Lord has spoken to you, what you've heard the Lord challenge you with, what he wants you to do based on what you have heard. Actually, we're so serious about this time of of encouraging you to consider carefully what you have heard, to listen well and think how you're going to respond, that every time before we are even dismissed from the service, we actually have a moment of silence at the end of the service for about 15, 20 seconds. I know it's awkward, for, especially if you're new to our congregation. It's going to feel awkward. But we have this moment of silence because we want you not to leave this place thinking that you have heard something and then not think carefully of what you have heard. We want you to have a moment of silence so that you can pay attention and listen well and think about how you will respond to the Lord. We begin rebelling against the Lord by what we do with our ears. One of the greatest things we can encourage one another is to prepare. When we gather on Sunday mornings, one way you can prepare for Sunday mornings is, first of all, go to sleep early Saturday night. You know why? So you don't fall into the temptation of falling asleep in the sermon. And when you fall asleep in the sermon, what happens? You miss out on hearing and listening what the Lord is speaking to his people. You might laugh, but it's serious. You're missing out on listening to what God is speaking. We also encourage you to, to pay attention, to come ready to listen by encouraging you to read the passage of the, of the sermon beforehand. We make it known in the church-wide email. We put in the bulletin a week in advance. We encourage you actually in your quiet time, take the passage for next week. It'll be Isaiah 66. Read it sometime this week and ask the Lord to prepare your heart. So that when we gather next Sunday, you come with a heart ready to hear from the Lord. Why? Because rebellion starts when we stop listening. When we stop being ready to respond to what the Lord has to say for us. The contrast between rebellion and the servants of the Lord whom God is building up is clearly displayed. In verses 13 to 16, God decrees that he will make a distinction between his his people and the rebellious. The description is described in in three ways. God's people will have their needs met. Verse 13. Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. God is speaking here to the the rebellious. In in a second category, um, it's not only that God would meet the physical needs, God would also meet the deeply seated needs of his people. Verse 14. My servants shall sing for gladness of heart. The contrast for the wicked is very clear. But you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail because, for breaking of spirit. In other words, the contrast is not only between external experiences, but it's a contrast in what people will feel in their hearts. The servants of the Lord whom God is rebuilding will have hearts whom God will fill with joy. And the reason when they gather to sing together, the reason why they sing joyfully 
is not because a tune is great. It's not because of the style of music is great. It's because there's joy in their hearts. That's why they can't stop singing because of the joy that's welling up in the heart. Before they're rebellious, God will fill their hearts with pain, with brokenness. And finally, the, 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 the final contrast between the, between the people God is building up and, 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 the, the, and the rebellious is their identity and their legacy. We see that in verse 15. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name. You might wonder, what's the big deal about another name? After all, I have a name. I'm not interested to change my name. No, friends. If you keep your old name, you will keep a name that it has been stained by the curse of sin. And God wants to give you a new name. A new name. A name in the Bible was oftentimes a picture of giving a new identity, a new legacy. You remember when Abraham, well, when God decided to begin a new people and called out Abraham? One of the first things God told Abraham is that he will give Abraham a new name. From Abram to Abraham. And his new name was going to identify Abraham as a father of many nations. Friends, when God says he's going to give a new name, he's giving a new identity. He's giving a new calling. The legacy that we leave behind us, if it's the legacy that we have inherited in our sinful nature, will be only a legacy of curse. So, my dear parents, the best legacy you can give to your children is not your last name. It's not some physical inheritance. It's not even the education that you desire to give them, whether it's through homeschooling or through private education or through whatever education means you can give them. The best thing you can give your children is to leave them a name, your name, that's not a curse. To leave them a new name, the new name that God has given you, the new identity that God has given you the new priorities that God has given you, the new legacy that God has given you. That's the best thing you can leave for your children. Parents, as some of you are here with your uh, students and you're going to leave them here, the best thing you can pray for your students is not to be A students. The best thing you can pray for your students is not to be excelling and going above and beyond their secular uh, education here at UT. The best thing you can pray for them is is that God would give them a new name that only God can give them, and that they would be followers of, of the God of the universe. And when God chooses to bless his people, to rebuild his people, oh, friends, the contrast between those who follow God and those who continue the path of rebellion, that contrast may be fuzzy and deceptive now. Because sometimes in this side of, 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 of heaven, God's people may endure suffering. But what God prepares for his people for eternity cannot compare. God will create for his people, for the new people he creates. He not only will give them a new name, God will make for them a new creation. And it's, it's not simply that God will give them the best neighborhood in town. It's not that God will give them the best house or the best job. 
No, God will give a brand new creation. And that creation is so glorious, and it's worth our time listening to it so carefully that we will actually stop here and ask you to come back and hear the second part of that next Sunday. But just be aware, dear friends, that God is preparing a people for himself. He will make them, and he will give them a glorious experience. But at the end of the day, this chapter, dear friends, this chapter concludes with, with this challenge that we see. And I love the, how one of the commentators brought, brought this chapter in, in summarizing in such a be- beautiful and brief way. The solemn message of the opening section of this chapter is that to call on God to rend the heavens and come down is to invite his judgment as well as his salvation. To bring on the final separation between the saved and the lost among his own people as well as in the world at large. The prayer for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done is a prayer for the end of the world. It is a prayer we should never pray lightly. Let's close in prayer.